This morning we'll be reading out of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Spirit, Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you were also who you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you may be seated, but you uh, may also leave your Bibles open. We're going to stay there. We're going to spend some time in Romans, this incredible letter, as we continue our sermon series through this letter of Romans entitled, The Gospel in Romans, the power of God for salvation. And I've reminded us over the course of the last many weeks that what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel is explicitly, according to Scripture, the power of God for salvation. And that which the power of God is leveraged for will be. We can have a confidence in the salvation that comes from God because it has the very power of God behind it. And let's consider, is there a greater power? There is, none, there is no power that is greater than the power of our gods, and so we can be confident in the salvation that we have in him, the salvation that he has accomplished. And so our prayer for this series is that over the coming years, the Lord would build for us a foundation for our faith in the power of God for salvation. So do you see what's going on there? Our desire is that we would get a good foothold in that which is sure, that which is itself confident. And so let's open up the word together. We're in this greeting. We're going to wrap up the greeting this morning. And uh, the greeting begins with the, the gospel of God. Paul introducing himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And this gospel of God, we're told, and in verse 3, is concerning the Son. The gospel of God is concerning the Son. And by the time we get to verse 4, we have this Son of God being revealed in power. All right, he is God the Son. This is who He is. The relationship between Father and Son being foundational to our understanding of, of redemption being accomplished in this world begins with the, this covenant of redemption between Father and Son. The Father sending the Son. The Son securing a people for Himself. The, the Father giving, granting that people to the Son and the Son bringing that people to an inheritance that's kept in heaven for them by His work. All of this is, is God the Son at work. And when we see the Son resurrected, we see Him resurrected in power. We see the very power of the Son on display because of what He's done in redemption history in that victorious moment that we see in the resurrection and in the ascension so that the Son sits on the throne in power. A throne of redemption, a throne from which He can keep a salvation, an inheritance, a redemption for his people. We ended last week with these words, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
It's like Paul can't even move any further in, the, in this greeting without exclaiming, and he does this often, without just exclaiming, who am I talking about, guys, right? Talking about Jesus Christ. Talking about the Messiah, who is revealed in power as our Lord. This is who we're talking about. This is who Paul is a servant of. Now, as we begin this morning, we continue there in verse five, and we see what the Apostle Paul is called to do in light of this Jesus, the Christ, our Lord. So let's go to the Lord in prayer that we ourselves would hear what is in the scriptures for us today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your work among your people. I thank you for your grace and your call, not only in the life of Paul, to record for us this Scripture faithfully inspired, kept and preserved for us by your Spirit, but also for your work in the midst of the congregation this morning. I pray that your word would work, that your grace would be made manifest through the preaching of your word. Your Spirit would meet that, that proclamation with faith, that you would create faith in us, that we would receive your grace and your word and that you would bring about transformation among the congregation this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things because this is what you do by your great power, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love it when a passage, uh, again, I feel like this has been true so far, but I love it when a passage uh, has its sermon outline just sitting there waiting for us. All right, if you look at our text, Really, the primary portion of our text is going to be verses 5 and 6 this morning. You can already see what the notes are. We're, we're going to see this through whom we've received grace and apostleship. We're going to see that what it means to receive these things in the life of Paul and by extension to us. We'll then consider what, it, what it, this, this grace and apostleship is to bring about. It brings about obedience of faith, and we'll look at that secondly. And then we'll turn together to see the end of these things, that that grace and apostleship is given to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name. And I love that phrase. We're going to spend some time in it because it's such a powerful phrase. But we're going to begin together by considering grace and apostleship. Now, as we look at that, don't forget where verse 5 comes from. It's got a comma. We're in the middle of a sentence. And we've got to remember the words that came right before it. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. And whatever we have of grace and apostleship, we have through whom we have received. All right? Through whom. Now, the passage says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, that's interesting. Because isn't Paul the one who received apostleship. Now, now all those who are with Paul, who, have, who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, are those who have received grace. It's true. But that's not what Paul says. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. That's a bit confusing because only Paul is the apostle here. And there's a number of ways that you could consider this. Paul is the one to whom Jesus has appeared and, and given a specific commission 
as an apostle, as one who has an explicit authority from God, who has seen the resurrected Christ and bears witness to him, and upon that foundation, the church is established, the the foundation of the the testimony, the witness of the apostles. That's Paul in this case. Now, it's possible that Paul is is using what uh, is called the, the the plural of category, okay? You might have heard this you, uh, called the, the royal we, you know, where it's only an individual speaking, but they're speaking from the position uh, of, a, of a category, all right? A position of the kings, the position of the royals, or perhaps in this case, the position of the apostles, the plural of category. Yes, he's speaking for himself, but he uses the plural to highlight his apostolic office, the category of apostle. That said, I think that's very possible, and, and honestly, as you look at the commentators, they're, they're not sure exactly why he uses we. It very well could be that, but I also know that as we've seen the apostle Paul in his ministry, we've often seen a humility present, even as he's written the other later letters. So often, he draws attention to names and persons as fellow servants, companions with him. I think that humility is important because Paul is an apostle. He is the apostle that's being spoken about here. He is the, the only one in this, in this greeting who is actually called by the resurrected Jesus Christ to be an apostle. But the ministry that he has personally received is a labor that he performs alongside many companions, many fellow servants. So while Paul has the authoritative apostolic office, he goes about this ministry with many others who are with him. So it's quite appropriate to speak of the grace that all the laborers for the sake of the gospel, which Paul Paul proclaims, have received. There is a grace that is for this whole collection of people as they go about this apostolic ministry of the proclamation of the gospel that Paul has received. While it's true that members of the church occupy different roles, that's true, right? I mean, right now, we're occupying different roles right here. There's different gifts that come together when the body gathers. I got to walk in nice and early this morning and see a lot of those gifts at work. And as you began to gather, I saw various of you ministering in the gifts that God has given to the members of the church. It's true that we participate together in a ministry, a partnership in the gospel for which Jesus alone has provided grace. I think that's something that we can take from just this little word, we. There's a plurality to a ministry, even if it's a ministry that's in service to an apostolic office. Now, look at verse 5 one more time. We're going to read it a number of times together. We have Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. We have received. We can't speak of grace without speaking of Jesus, who is God's grace to us. Jesus is not just the one who gives grace. Jesus is the gift that is received. We know this from the scriptures in numerous places. Galatians 2:20 speak of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See Jesus is the gift given for the redemption of the church. 
Jesus did not merely give a gift to the church and then call that gift grace. Jesus gave himself. That is, Jesus is the substance of the grace, and Jesus accomplishes the substance of the grace. So every good gift, all that it is received, we have through him. Like the passage says, it's through him, through the Christ. And the, the greatest substance of the gift that we receive through the Christ is to receive the Christ himself. For Paul in this greeting, he has received Christ and the call to make the Christ known. That if, the, if Paul would receive the gift of grace, which is to receive through Christ, the Christ and his gospel, Paul now goes to make what known? Christ himself known. This is the ministry of the apostles, to make Christ known. This is called grace. We don't even need to get to the word grace in the passage to realize that we're talking about grace. How so? Look at it. Through whom we have received. We're talking about receiving something from God and that something being something that you're pleased to receive, not like justice or wrath. Or, or the righteous judgment of God upon your sin. If we're going to talk about anything other than that stuff, if you've received something that you are pleased to receive from God, that has a name, right? It's called grace. We have received alone tells us we're talking about grace. This is the definition and the nature of grace. Grace is something that is received, not merited, not earned, not waged, and then transactioned, but rather received. I'm going to go to one of the greatest verses we could go to to think about this. I'm going to go over to another letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And we're going to come back to this again in the next section of our text. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is unmerited favor that's freely given and received by faith. For by grace you have been saved. Now that's not to say that the grace itself is free. It's received freely. But grace is that gift that, though freely given, is obtained by the giver himself at great cost to himself. It is true that grace is free to be received, but it was obtained at great cost. Another way to say it is the ground of grace is merited by Christ. That there is grace to give Grace that merits forgiveness, grace that is to given for salvation, means that the Christ has done something, has obtained something, something of substance that he can now freely give. <clears throat> so the forgiveness, the new life, the calling that we receive, which we call grace, while it's secured at great costs through the death, life, resurrection of Jesus Christ, when it is received by faith, it's unmerited, and it's free, 
and it's called grace for a reason. So Romans is clear that grace is gift. One of the verses that you could write in the margin of your Bible here would to, to point elsewhere in Romans is Romans 6.23, right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a wage. There is a merit. You can earn it. And you will be paid justly for your merit. That wage that can be earned is merited by sin. All you have to do, you're good at it, just keep doing it, and you'll get the wage. The the wage for sin, though, it turns out, is death. You can earn it. You can earn it quite well. I know I have. But there is a gift, and it cannot be earned. There is a gift, and it is a free gift because it's actually a gift. And that gift is life, and it is by, in, and through Jesus Christ. Paul just can't move any further, even in a greeting, without talking about grace that is received. Now, what's interesting about our verse is it says, through whom we have received grace. And if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, you're familiar with hearing that kind of language. But he doesn't just say that. He says grace and apostleship. What's the link between grace and apostleship? This sending that the Lord has given to the Apostle Paul to proclaim the gospel. What's the link between the receiving grace and receiving a call to proclaim? Well, some of you may know that the Apostle Paul wasn't always the Apostle Paul. He was an enemy of Jesus, an actual enemy of Jesus, a persecutor of the church. And when the resurrected Jesus appeared to that Paul, an enemy of Christ and his gospel, an enemy of the church, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and literally knocked Paul off his feet. Like literally, Paul's on the ground. And in Acts chapter 26, and again, another good scripture to write in the margin so you can go back to that and look at it during the course of this week. In Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 16, Jesus says to this Paul who's knocked down on the ground encountering the resurrected Jesus in glory, he says, but rise and stand up upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the powers of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith, sanctified by faith in me. You see, Paul is describing his conversion experience. He's describing the day that he met the resurrected Lord that he was calling a sham and a a lie, a myth of the disciples, and he was putting it down, and then he meets him. And he's glorious and he's powerful, even powerful to save. And Paul is converted to become a disciple of this Jesus Christ. 
But that is simultaneous with something, isn't it? In fact, Jesus barely even talks about it when he talks to Paul. You see, simultaneous with Paul's conversion from death to life, from enemy of Christ, he's converted to a proclaimer of Christ. Simultaneous. Grace and apostleship has been received. Consider Paul's description of the same event in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians 1.15, he says this, He who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was revealed, was pleased to reveal his son to me. He's been called by God. The grace of God by which Paul is redeemed is identical with that grace by which he is called. Paul's call to follow Christ is a call to make him known. You go anywhere when the Apostle Paul talks about himself as a servant of God, when he introduces himself in any of his letters, you see that the, the call to follow after Christ is a call to make him known. And I wonder, isn't that always the case? How can we know Christ and not worship him with our mouths in such a way that we worship him in making him known? That is the call to the redeemed. That is the call of redemption. It is a call to make him known. Friends, there is no ministry that is not the work of God's grace in our lives. Whatever it is that that God is calling us to, whatever ways that he has shaped our lives to, to be lived in obedience to him, that is a work of grace. It's a fruit of grace that's springing up in your life. There's no call to follow Christ that's not accompanied by a call to make him known. I mean, think about it for a second. It's by grace that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, is it not? And what does the Holy Spirit do but gift his church, filling the believer every good gift for the glory of Christ and the edification of the church? You who are redeemed have the Spirit of God. And you who are redeemed have that Spirit to gift you to make Christ known and to build up his people. I go back to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever would save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now that's interesting. It makes sense. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's not what he says, is it? Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Notice that Jesus Jesus is filling this out. It is Christ and his gospel by which we have been saved and to which we have been converted to make known. We are to remain faithful not only to Christ, but also to the proclamation of his gospel. Our lives are to be sent, spent for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Jesus is explicit that this Numerous times. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as I considered this passage is, is what does Paul think of himself? Now, we, we actually get to hear from the Apostle Paul quite often. He's written a number of letters, and he always includes some form of a greeting, and, and often there's even sort of a, a postscript that we get to see at the end. We get, to get, we get to know quite a bit about Paul. Well, what do we know about him so far? 
Well, what does Paul think of himself? Does the Apostle Paul to think to himself, man, I planted a lot of churches. And he did. Does Paul think to himself, and I've been through a lot of hardships, a lot of persecutions, suffered a lot. Does Paul think to himself, I've had a lot of friends, and I've encountered a lot of foes. What does Paul think of himself? Does, does he think, I've remained faithful. I've maintained my integrity. I've managed to hold on to my character and grow in my character. I've pressed on when so many others have become weary. Is that what Paul thinks of himself? Well, let's check. What does, he, what does he tell us about himself? That seems to flow so easily off his tongue that you almost get the impression that this is who he thinks he is. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul, an apostle, a sent one. I was sent by the Jesus that I saw. Paul, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, grace recipient. Paul, preaching for the sake of Jesus' name. Who's Paul? The fact is, we, we really hardly know. We almost know by accident, because Luke wrote about, a lot about what, where Paul went and what happened when he went there. But from Paul, all that we know is he seems to be a servant of Christ and his gospel. He seems to always want to talk about Christ and, and the grace that was given toward him. For Paul, his entire life and labor is from, through, and to Christ. I find that challenging. Because you asked me who I am, and you'll find out what I think of myself. I'm a church planter, right? Well, I'm a dad. I, I do a lot of work in my home, and I have some hobbies. We could talk about those for a while, and I can tell you what my mind spins on. My mind is always racing. I don't know if some of you are like that. I would love to. Some of you are you're able to sit down and just rest. What do you think about nothing? I can't do that. And my mind is always racing. But it seems that the Apostle Paul's mind is always racing too, and it seems to just flow out. I'm redeemed. I've been purchased. I'm a servant of a master. And oh, if you only knew him, you would know how good he is. What do I think of myself? I'm not asking, what answer could you give on a Christian test about identity? Many of you have already taken that test in your past. You can say, I'm a child of God. I'm saved by grace through faith, secure in my eternal inheritance. I know that my, my hope is kept in heaven for me. But I'm asking, what do you actually think about you? What do you actually think about you? Do you actually functionally think of yourself as a recipient of grace? First and foremost and enduringly so. As one whose labor in this life is to make Christ known. And I'm taking that as a personal challenge. What would it be like when, when Sandy asks me on Monday morning, she often makes coffee for me, and if I saw her first thing, I said, she said, so what, what are your plans for today? I'm like, oh man, it's Monday, I'm normally exhausted after Sunday, I don't know. You know, well, what if my answer was, man, I mean, as a recipient of grace, it seems to me I need to make Christ known. Like, what if, what if that was guttural on the inside? Like, that's, that's what today seems to be all about. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out today. But I think that I'm supposed to be a proclaimer of grace. The fact is, your identity will compel you. 
Whatever you think of yourself, whatever you think that you've done, whoever you think that you are, it will define your actions and your emotional disposition. It will. Who are you? Well, what if you were a recipient of grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord? How would that affect your actions and your emotional disposition? Friends, that is unshakable. It has the power of God behind it. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. What does Paul want the people to whom he is speaking, the church to whom he speaks and sends this letter to know? You are loved by God. Brothers and sisters, you who have received grace and the call of God are partners in the gospel and you are loved by God. This is who you are. Now, let's go back to verse five and we'll continue on to our next point. Maybe go a little bit quicker through this guy. And we see in verse five that Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. Obedience of faith. Now, that's a curious phrase. There's different ways he could have said that, and we'll look at it. Obedience of faith really could mean two different things. It could mean the obedience which is faith, like obedience of faith in the sense that obedience of faith is is faith itself. Obedience requires that you would receive grace by faith, or that speaking of an obedience, like an actual obedience, that comes from faith. Grace is received by faith, and that grace that is received by faith produces obedience. Now, Paul could have made this sentence so much more simple by simply saying to bring about faith. If that's what he meant to say, man, it would have been so easy to say it, but he didn't. And if he simply intended to say that the primary purpose of his preaching is obedience, he could have said that. He could have said the obedience of, a well, obedience. Like, just do it. You've received grace. Now do stuff, right? But instead he uses more words, and I think he does so on purpose. Consider Romans 14, 23. Here he says, in Romans 14, he says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we know that if obedience is pleasing to God, it's got to be an obedience of faith. I think that's why he puts it there, that there is a faith that comes first, and from that faith there is an obedience that we can walk in. If he'd only said obedience, he fails to draw the clear line of grace which passes through faith. But he does say faith, the obedience of faith. Only obedience, which is the fruit of faith, is an obedience, which is the fruit of grace. Again, I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2. I said we would come back, and this is our chance. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Four, all right? After all that grace, all of that grace that's received by faith, For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus through this grace and faith process for good works, which God's prepared in advance beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear it here? 
Paul goes out of his way, adding extra words in Ephesians 2. Grace is the gift of God. Grace is received by faith. So salvation is by grace through faith. And he goes out of his way to say it a few different times in a few different ways. But what is the result of this grace through faith? A new workmanship, a handiwork of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The believer is a recipient of grace. Grace is received through faith. And grace results in a transformed life which glorifies God. This is the, what it means to be a redeemed person, a grace recipient, one who's called by God to make him known, one who receives that grace through faith alone, not merited, but faith, and who is therefore transformed. You know, Romans 16 closes the letter, and right at the end of the letter, in verses 25 through 27, the Apostle Paul closes the letter by speaking of the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, which there he says brings about the obedience of faith. And he does all that in the context of a doxology that ends to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. He does the same thing that he does here, doesn't he? There's an obedience of faith that grace produces that leads to his great name. There's a pattern throughout the gospel that's proclaimed by Paul. It's by the mercies of God, his grace, that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. Did you hear that? Remember? Romans 12, by the mercies of God, we present our bodies. It's as a people who have been transformed by grace that we now walk in a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. It's as a transformed people. A few years ago, we spent time as a church reflecting on Titus chapter 2. We were in verses 11 through 14. It reads like this in the first couple of verses there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does the grace of God create? Salvation. First and foremost, it brings about salvation. And then it continues to say, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, grace produces, brings about salvation. And that salvation then works in us a training to renounce ungodliness. Consider that a people to whom grace has appeared and who have been saved by grace might also come to love the grace giver. I mean, is that possible? If you've been saved by grace, will you not come to love grace? Here's how Thomas Manton says it, and I've just modernized this a little bit. Obedience owes the obligation. That's how obedience works. I told you to do something, now do it. You owe the obligation. Love inclines to discharge the duty. And faith looks up to God for help. Help me, Lord. You know how I am with this obedience thing. But you're good. You've shown me the goodness of your ways. Grant me the faith, help, and acceptance that we may do it in Christ. And for Christ's sake, in God's glory, not mine. We are all creatures bound by a duty to our creator. But we're more than that. We are a people redeemed recipients of grace. So we are free to love God. And we are free to follow the way after him who has loved 
our souls. And as a people by grace, we have every reason to believe that the Lord who saved us will also help us to follow after his good way. So our obedience is by faith. Our obedience is by faith in the one. He saved me. He blessed me. He'll keep me. He'll train me in the way that is good. One more time to Thomas Manton. He writes, the command of the law sways the conscience and love inclines the heart and so it becomes an act of pure obedience. It's not just obedience. It's not begrudging obedience. not fearful obedience, but pure obedience. Obedience respects the command as love respects the kindness and merit of the lawgiver. So we can say the law of the Lord Perfect. Man, it revives the soul. God has willed obedience. And it is by grace through faith that we've come to see that God's will is good. Man, God's will has willed grace to me. I want all of God's will. If that's what God's will is like. This is the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's received grace and apostleship. That as he preaches the gospel, it would produce faith-filled obedience among all the nations. Jesus says the same thing in the great commission of his disciples. They are to go and make disciples. As they go and make disciples, they're going to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And they are to teach these new disciples to obey all that the Lord has commanded. Why? because he's a cruel master, and he demands obedience. No. He's the grace giver, and he knows the good way for a people to walk in him. Why would he redeem them and leave them in their lostness and sin? But he brings them in to the fold of his household and shows them the household way. We are the recipients of grace, and we're the saints of God. To all those in Rome, in verse 7, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Man, what a blessing to not only be loved, but be called to a transformation that itself is holy. Now, back to verse 5 one more time. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, for the sake of his name. Now, all is of grace, but why? I mean, he is the Lord. He could command. He could demand. But no, it's of grace, because all is for the sake of his name. All is unmerited. Why? Because it's for the sake of his name. What is our motivation for proclaiming the gospel? What's our motivation for mission. We've already seen that Paul's apostolic call of grace is the result of grace. He receives a call as a result of grace. And so his motivation is as one who has received grace, he'll proclaim grace because the grace giver's good. For the sake of his name, Paul engages in mission. We'll see that this call is for the purpose of bringing about the sort of obedience which is the result of clinging to grace. It's not that Paul received grace and then he went somewhere else. 
He clings to grace all the way through the ministry because grace's end is to receive the grace giver for the sake of his name. But what is the end? What gets the apostle up in the morning? How how does the apostle Paul change to be one that when he's woken up and, and one of his traveling companions says, so what's on the agenda today? And the apostle Paul says, well, I think preaching the gospel seems good. Making known the name of the Christ who saved me. How do, you, how do you make that change? Well, the name is Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what compels him. The Lord is great. He's worthy not only to be praised, but to be proclaimed among the nation. For the sake of his name, the Apostle Paul gets up in the morning. We can go to a number of scriptures. I've chosen just a few. The apostles agree together. In, in 1 John, the Apostle John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I want you to know you get to be redeemed because the Lord is great. That's why your sins are forgiven. But what about suffering? What about suffering for the sake of his name? Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated for all, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. As we cling to Christ by faith and we make his name known, we will be hated by the world. But that's not our motivation, to be loved by the world. It was never the motivation. It was because he's worthy. That's why we make his name known. And we continue in grace and ministry because it is received for the sake of his name. Revelation 2, 3. I know you're enduring patiently. And you're burying up. Why? Because we got to be strong. We got character up behold. We got integrity to stand on. No. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Friends, that's something by which you will not grow weary because his name will never not be great. He will always be great and worthy of waking up in the morning to proclaim. He who saved us and brought us into the sweetness of his good and perfect will is worthy to be made known among the nations. Friends, this passage makes it clear that there is a grace giver. Do you understand yourself as a grace recipient? Do you understand yourself as one who is an unmeriting recipient of grace and a call to make Christ known. And the purpose of making him known is to bring about the obedience of faith. Is your faith oriented toward obedience? Or do you have a a weak, a, a cheap grace faith? The sort of grace that's so weak that all it can do is maybe save a sinner, but leaves them in their sin. Because he doesn't really love you enough to lift you out of that. No. We worship a great God who is worthy and actually loves his people to bring about a transformation so that the word saint makes sense among his people. All of this is for the sake of his name. Is that a worthy end for you? Brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. You are called by God. To you, according to verse 7, is grace and peace for the sake of his name. You know, I was thinking this week, what if 
that phrase waved as a banner over our church for the sake of his name? What if it literally, you could see it like with your eyes, and, and just waved as a banner over us? Now, let's be clear. I do not mean over this building. Like, we're not going to get a nice stenciled graphic in the hallway that says, for the sake of his name. That might give us the wrong idea. No, it's not just in this building, and it's not just when we gather in a variety of places that we can wave a banner over the people and say, for the sake of his name. What if, what if that banner waved over the church who are loved by God and called to be his saints wherever we are? early in the morning, through the day, and late into the evening, whether we're gathered together or scattered around the county. What if it made sense when someone when looked at you and, and, and upon examining a life said that, for the sake of his name, seems to be the only description, the only motivation that would make sense for a behavior that looks like that. This seems to be one who has been captured by grace and a great, great name. What if we live lives according to grace that we have received? What if it would be appropriate that the banner would wave over our days for the sake of his name? Do our lives look as though they spring from grace? There should be silence for a moment. Think. No. <laughs> Why? What does that look like? Well, we have a choice at this moment. You have a choice that you say, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put together a list of behaviors because those are the behaviors that will prove that I am a forsake of his name sort of guy. No. The apostle Paul never does that. It's not the point of the passage and it misses the whole preaching of the gospel itself. You need to remember the ground of grace. This is where we see him to be great. And as we see him to be great, then all of a sudden we have a a name that is worthy of waking up for. And so let's go to the ground of grace. Let's go to the ground of the gospel. Who is Jesus Christ, our Lord? And may you, Lord, grow up among us, a people who are loved by God and called to be saints. Heavenly Father, this is a request. This is a prayer. Thank you for the kindness of giving to us this example to follow. We actually can follow after Paul, a servant. He's nobody, but he's a whole lot like us. He's a nobody who has received grace. He's a sinner and a rebel against your good name to whom you appeared. Lord, we pray that the transformation that we see in his life would be the sort of transformation that you would work in ours. It doesn't come from him, but it does come from the gospel that he has proclaimed, a gospel of grace. Lord, we pray that you would grant us mercy today. We pray that you would grant us eyes to see lives that are oriented to the fame of many other things, and that we would go back to that ground of grace for forgiveness, which itself is for the sake of your name. And that you would bring about a transformation that looks like a people who have been captured by love and themselves have become lovers of your great name. Lord God, we do confess we do love you. 
We love you in a failing, weak way. But even the fact that we love you at all is evidence of your grace in our lives. Lord, we wanna love you more. Teach us. Teach us the, the grace and peace, the love and sainthood that you would have for your people in our days. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in Jesus' name alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.